Hello, and welcome to Talking and Chill, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hey, Tamar. Hi, Mimi. And Zahava Stadler in northern New Jersey. Hey, Tamar. Hi, Zahava. I'm so glad to have both of you here today. We have a fun show. This month on the podcast, we're talking about The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, a new show on Amazon Prime that drops tomorrow on the day that we're recording this, so November 29th. And we're talking about what it's like to be Jewish during the secular high holiday season. I guess not high holiday, just regular holiday. Um, so we're going to start missing off... They're out with no high holidays. I know, I know. I guess what would like the Yamim Noraim be? I guess the days between Christmas and New Year's? We're going to have to hash this out in our second segment. Um, <laughs> okay, so The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is a new show from creator Amy Sherman Palladino of Gilmore Girls and Bunheads fame. It's about Miriam, or Midge Maisel, a wealthy, Jewish, a wealthy Jewish housewife on the Upper West Side in the 1950s. Um, after her husband dumps her for his secretary, she falls into the world of stand-up comedy. It stars uh, Rachel Brosnahan as Miriam with an ensemble that also includes Alex Borstein, Maren Hinkle, and Tony Shalhoub. So we got screeners of this show, and I'm super curious what you ladies thought of it. Mimi, what did you think? So I found this show to be really charming. Um, it hit a lot of the like pleasure points that Gilmore Girls did for me, you know, like witty and quick um, dialogue and really delightful, if quirky and maybe sometimes a little bit annoying characters. Um, plus, I also really liked the aesthetics of it, the 1950s clothes and like unrealistic body types and hair. Um, so those were my my likes. It definitely also hit some of my pet peeves, but I'll save that until um, we get a little further in the conversation. Awesome. Zava, what about you? What did you think of it? So I thought the show was really fun. Um, I second Mimi's uh, enjoyment of the aesthetics. I think not just the characters and the costuming, but just like the visuals of the show generally are really saturated colors, very bright, very strong. Um, it looks like a fun version of New York to live in. Um, and, you know, I was a big Gilmore Girls fan, um, and this show bears out why. The writing is really good. Um, but it feels, it's really enjoyable, but it also feels like a very dispensable piece of fluff. Um, to me, like it doesn't feel like it's filling any kind of important television niche right now. Um, I, I found myself, uh, very much contrasting it to another, um, feminist pathbreaking show that has been on Amazon recently, which is Good Girls Revolt, which Amazon is not renewing, um, which feels like a much more urgent and relevant show about sexism in the workplace, even though it's also like fun period costume and rich colors. And, um, and this show, I think, uh, Mrs. Maisel has better writing, um, but it also feels less necessary. Um, and even though I think I will stick with this show and I am really enjoying it, I found it made me miss that show and regret its non-renewal more. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I also loved the show. I mean, I just, like, had a great time watching it. When when I was, like, reading the premise, I had a hard time imagining that I was really going to love it. But it's super fun. I wasn't able to watch all of the screeners that we got just because I didn't have enough time. And I was really annoyed <laughs> that I didn't have the time to watch all of the show that I wanted to watch because... Yeah, it's just like a really fun show. I totally agree about the aesthetics. It's delight, delight to watch. I, I am <laughs> Zahaba. I'm sure you must appreciate how much of the costumes make it to your tier one or two of your uh, <laughs> your criteria. <laughs> um, yeah, what Tamar is referring to, listeners, for those of you who are not Facebook friends with me, which I hope is a good number of you. Um, <laughs> is that I have a personal practice of every award show doing a thorough analysis of which of the red carpet looks I could wear as a person who covers a lot of skin. 
Um, and I have a very rigid and uh, well-developed taxonomy of what falls into tier one. Tier two requires minor modifications, tier three moderate modifications, etc. The 50s fashion of the show places a lot of stuff in tier one. <laughs> I'm sure everyone will be shocked to find out that Zahava has a, a rigid set of rules with a detailed taxonomy attached <laughs> to them. <laughs> um anyways i was thinking while i was watching this well there's quite a lot of tier one dresses here for zahava (laughs) um uh yeah and i thought i mean zahava it's so interesting what you say about like is it really necessary like i mean i don't know is any television necessary like it's i feel like that's kind of a hard a hard demand to make of something like television. And I mean, I watched a few episodes of the good girls revolt and I know some people who are involved in making it. And I understand why like the story behind it is an important story, but that was just not as fun of a show to watch. This is just a more fun show to watch. And the other thing that I'll say about that is like, I think that the good girls revolt is, you know, it's about sexism in the workplace, which is certainly occurrent, but this show is actually like in a lot of ways about sexism in the workplace too. It's just sexism in the comedy workplace. And it's about like a woman having to figure out how to make her way in a workplace that isn't really set up for women. Um, and, and she really has to change her frame of mind to make it happen as well. So I, I don't know. I don't feel like it's like, it doesn't feel totally fluffy to me, Um, but it also, you know, it's not like Breaking Bad or something. I mean, it's not one of those things where it's like you're watching it and you're, you feel like you're having like an intense psychological experience, but I think that's okay. I mean, I feel like if you pay attention to the news, you're having an enough intense psychological experiences every day that it's okay if you want to watch something kind of bright and fizzy at, on TV. This is really effective escapism. I'm with you on that. I, I think maybe to like clarify what I meant by important, I just mean that this show doesn't feel like it's shedding new light on an area for me. Like you have a main character who's like an upper crusty 1958 housewife and her husband leaves her, and then she, instead of breaking down over it, she uh, says, screw it, I'm better off without him, and I'm going to become a stand-up comedian. And, okay, so that's kind of, like, screwball and great, but at the same time, the fact that that puts her way outside the mainstream and makes her a screwball is not at all surprising. Um, And so I guess the... um, the, the one sort of light this might be shedding, and we're, uh, we were given the first four episodes of an eight-episode first season to watch, um, so I'm wondering if it's going to develop more in this direction by, uh, by the mid-season it seems to, um, that it might actually be sort of a, a history of mid-century comedy, that we might actually get a little bit more, um, you know, there's a reference to Mort Saul, there's an actor playing um, uh, Red Fox, and, you know, there's a routine from... Um, Mm, whose routine uh, is stolen by all these poser guys? What's his name? Oh, uh, the Bob, Bob Newhart. Newhart. Yes. So we have like little bits of authentic stand-up, and I wonder if that's really what's going on. Um, I also uh, we also have quick... Lenny Bruce. That's true. Lenny Bruce features very prominently here. That's a good point. Which is, and this is an important history of comedy thing. And you know, I read a. Um, a Vulture article that includes an interview with Amy Sherman Palladino, the creator of the show, and her motivating push seems to really be this notion that people still think in comedy that women aren't funny. Um, And I guess to me that's not revelatory, but as a female comedy writer, she might feel that very acutely, and maybe that's the ground being broken by this show, is making that point about being a female stand-up. So, I don't know. I mean... It didn't feel that urgent to me, but it's definitely fun to watch. I certainly hope that that we're not watching a show about a 1950s upper crust housewife who be, 
becomes turned on politically because he started to get sort of inklings of an awakening political consciousness. She speaks out at um, a Jane Jacobs rally to prevent a street going in Central Park. I I guess I imagine it was Central Park. I don't know. Um, And she starts thinking about things like Nixon and um, what else? Oh, like blue laws um, controlling things like lewdness um, and speech. And I, I don't know, like, that's not interesting to me. So, sorry, Amy. <laughs> Did you? I mean, I, I feel like it. I mean, I'm, I'm like three, two and a half episodes in. So you guys may be a little farther along than I am but I I don't know I didn't feel like that social element was too heavy-handed and I did it was kind of surprising but it didn't feel like that was going to be the theme of the show um tomorrow I'm not sure if you got there yet so I'm I'm not going to spoil a, a plot point but there's a moment when she shows up to a rally slash protest, literally knowing nothing about what's going on, right. basically stands next to a black woman who explains to her what's going on, and then she, the white woman, is invited to speak. And I was just like, I mean, that's, to me, that's like, ridiculous. That's ridiculous. We don't need that right now. Well, but don't, don't you think that's the point of it? Like the point is, like she was, <laughs> she was just explained what she was even at, and then she was asked to speak, and like that's a problem, and like we can see that now with our twenty seventeen glasses on, where at the time we couldn't, or those, I mean, we weren't alive. I do think yeah. the show kind of revels in, uh, for for lack of a better term, shepping Nachus in her awakening. Um, <laughs> yeah. like the the show is really reveling in in like watch this woman become exposed to the world now that this impediment of a husband is out of her way, um, and you know I mean it's fun to watch but um, I I think I'm gonna give the show the benefit of the doubt on that score and see how the second half of the season develops because I feel like there are different threads to explore. There's what happens with her family. Uh, there's what happens with her career, with her friendship with. Uh, comedy club manager who becomes her personal manager sort of on the spur of the moment um, and also with her relationship with the wider world um, and so I'm curious to see what really gets developed um, but one thing that doesn't get developed a whole lot is the Jewish side of the show meaning you I was start about to ask off about that. yeah you start off and and you're like told this is going to be a very Jewish show and then her Jewishness remains sort of a, a set of cultural touchstones in the background without really influencing the plot at all. I think there are some interesting things about the way the show portrays her Jewishness, but I'm curious how you guys felt about the, you know, how much it was important versus ambient noise. Yeah, I was a little bit disappointed in how the show seems to kind of like promise a little bit more Jewish content than it then delivered. The The first episode centers, seems like it is going to center on the fact that her family has the rabbi coming to their house for breakfast after Yom Kippur this year. And then even though like much is made of that in the beginning of the episode, it's just like totally dropped later. Um, and at one point, she's like, I shouldn't be eating this. It's Yom Kippur. But then she, like, still does. And and also, like, seems she seems to think that, like, drinking's okay, but eating's not on Yom Kippur. Like, <laughs> she's, like, both immersed in Jewish, in, in, in a Jewish world completely and also seems kind of oblivious to what that means, which is, like, you know true of lots of people now as then I'm sure but was like kind of a bummer because I was a little bit like excited for her to be like somebody who actually cares about and or knows about Judaism which doesn't seem to be what what happens I think there's there 
might be signs that Judaism is coming back in her relationship with her now estranged husband. Um, and I- I'm curious to see how that sort of plays out um, in the tension over like how to raise their kids and what sort of household um, her husband sets up for himself versus what she sets up for herself. Yeah, I mean, it is a kind of, so it is kind of an unusual kind of Jewish family in some ways and a very typical Jewish family in others. So um, both she and her uh, estranged estranged husband have very stereotypical Jewish parents. So, um, you know, very neurotic, very involved. You'll never, you know, you'll never get a date with a figure like that if you keep eating your donuts kind of Jewish mother, uh, like... Uh, what kind of an exotic food is that? I'm going to make my pierogies kind of Jewish mother. Um, somebody who can't stop talking about the Jews he saved in the Holocaust. Um, so in, in that way, it checks a bunch of parent stereotype boxes. On the other hand, though, this is, I think, the first TV show I've ever seen that depicts a mid-century Jewish family that isn't either like a recent immigrant Holocaust survivor refugee family or like a Lower East Side tenement dwelling factory worker. And the fact that these are extremely well-off, humongous apartment dwelling Upper West Side Jews is, that feels new to me. Um, It also feels implausible, but I'm not sure if it only feels implausible because it's new. Meaning, maybe it's just that I, like the rest of America, is used to seeing mid-century Jews depicted a certain way in the media. Um, but over the course of the show, the people outside her family just see her as a rich white lady. They don't see her as, nobody relates to her outside her family and outside her immediate home community as particularly Jewish. To me, that was kind of implausible, especially, you know, in this era where there's like a lot of Borscht Belt Jewish comedians being extremely Jewish about their comedy, the fact that she comes from this apparently very Jewish background, but all anybody sees is a rich white lady who, you know, kind of talks blue on stage and therefore it's shocking. And nobody outside sees her as Jewish at all. That felt implausible to me. Hmm. Did either of you think of Joan Rivers while you were watching this? You know, it didn't occur to me. Um, The comparison was made in that Vulture piece I read, and it kind of hit me like, well, of course. But honestly, I I, uh, was totally oblivious to it in the moment. Yeah. I also did not even think about Joan Rivers, but that's a perfect analogy, like the crassness, the lewd behavior. I was thinking, I was wondering if this was about um, Gilda Radner, but that was a little bit later um, time-wise. So I I like that, though. I like that theory. Yeah, I mean, I I just couldn't stop thinking about Joan Rivers while I was watching this. I don't think it's, like, an, an exact, you know, explanation of what her, or exploration of what her life was like. It sounds like she came from a much more working class background in Brooklyn. Um, and she, uh, but she did like see Lenny Bruce perform at a local club when she was in college. And um, she was married briefly in the fifties. She got divorced because apparently she wanted kids and her husband had not mentioned to her that he did not want kids before they got married. Um <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know. I thought of her a lot while I was watching this. Uh, also, like, her own obsession with how she looks is very similar to um, Midge in this in this show. So it was kind of fun to think about, you know, I think Joan Rivers is, people our age, I think of her as, like, a kind of, mean girl who was famous for kind of saying nasty things about people on the red carpet, which, like, was part of her identity. But she also was, like, a real pioneer of women in media, um, specifically in comedy. And, you know, there was basically only one 
female famous female comedian before her and that was Elaine May so it's pretty big pretty big deal um and I thought this was kind of like I, I liked imagining this as a kind of Joan Rivers alt history the posh version yeah exactly yeah one of the themes in her comedy is a little the the main character Midge Miriam Maisel um that comes up during her spontaneous early comedy is a little bit of ambivalence about being a mom and that is an ambivalence the show seems to share um I mean her kids are they exist and that's about all in the show she has a couple of kids that she's always dropping off at her parents and they don't seem to get in the way of her doing anything at two in the morning um so I I wasn't sure if the kids were just a device to hype up the betrayal of the husband that leaves and or a reason for us to discuss her ambivalence about motherhood more than they are like human beings on the TV show. Yeah, I mentioned that this show hits on some of my pet peeves and that is for sure one of my pet peeves when when you know it's like in an improv class they'll teach you like if you're holding a glass in one moment you can't just pretend like the glass disappears and do something else with your hands and it it feels like she is really attached to her identity as a mom and to her husband's identity as a dad we've got these two kids together and then in the very next scene it's like what I mean that they just disappear that their development isn't weighing on her mind in any sort of way yeah, I mean, I would say that I I felt like that was ridiculous, too. But on the other hand, I also just this week saw a chart that said that parents today spent, tw- spent twice as much time with their kids as parents did in the 80s. So we have to imagine that, like, in the 50s that, you know, the 80s might be like people were spending a little bit less time with their kids if we had two parent household two parent working households but like the trend is definitely towards people spending a lot more time with their kids i think it actually was not that weird for parents to not spend that much time with their kids just historically um it's it is weird that it doesn't seem to make that much of an impact on her as a person that she has kids like she she is concerned about them at kind of random intervals, but never for very long. But, you know, that's just how TV shows work. And, like, as, as a viewer, I'm not, like, a lot... I'm not super interested in her parenting of, like, an infant and a toddler. I'm much more interested <laughs> in in the stuff that we are seeing, which is, like, the comedy. And I kind of could do without her parents... Um, her father is played by Tony Shalhoub, who's an actor who I really like, but both of her parents just seem more caricatures of people. Um, and I mean, the whole, the whole show is that to some extent, but they seem like they're kind of taking it to 11 in a way that I don't personally love, um... But it also does lend some credence to, like, how did this person end up like this? Well, if she had parents like this, you could totally believe it. So, I don't know. Are we all going to keep watching it? I think yes. I I mean, I'm look, I've already seen the first four episodes. I've only got four to go once the show gets uh, posted. Um and it's definitely fun, but it is not a show that I feel the need to sit still and do nothing else while watching. Like, this is totally a show that I can have on while cooking, and it'll be super fun. Yeah. I'm with you. I think if this show were coming out once a week, I would drop off. Since it's probably going to come out as a whole season, I will binge it in the background, or just, or even, like, really engrossed in it, but to be done soon. Yeah. I will say that while I was watching it, my partner was like around and he was um, not really paying attention, but he was overhearing it. And he was like, 
it's just so rare that you see like this many characters in a show being this Jewish, which was a surprising takeaway for me. I don't really know what to make of that, but but um, but that was his takeaway, and I'm definitely gonna keep watching. I totally enjoy it but I don't do one thing at a time ever now so I will all definitely be doing something else while I watch it I mean look the characters are definitely being very Jewish but the, I don't get the strong sense that Amy Sherman Palladino knows a lot about what Jewish means um, and these are a lot of non-Jews playing a very exaggerated uh, but pretty stereotyped version of Jews so look it's fun. There's a, there's a, I think the recognition you get of the Judaism is the recognition of having watched Jews before on television, not the recognition of being a Jew. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, so it sounds like we are all fans of the shows to various degrees, and we would be curious what other people think of it, so please let us know. And um, we are now going to head on to our second segment. So, uh, Zahava, would you take it away? Sure. So um, recently, my office had its uh, organizational third anniversary, and we were having a birthday party. And somehow the topic of Jewish holidays and vacation days came up. And my boss, who is the nicest person in the world, um, was very indignant on my behalf that Christian holidays are national holidays, but Jewish holidays are not, and people have to spend all their vacation days on it. And really, my, my holidays should be recognized just like everybody else's. And I was like, that's lovely of you, but there aren't that many of us, and there are a lot of holidays. It doesn't seem that practical. Um, <laughs> but it was this interesting moment of somebody going, why, you know, why is there such a thing as a majority religion in this nominally secular country? And why does it kind of, you know, why is it kind of frustrating sometimes to be a Jewish person in, a, uh, in, in America during the holiday season, whether it's our holiday season when we're spending all our vacation days or the Christmas season, um, which euphemistically called the holiday season in a way that does not really, at least to me, me feel terribly more inclusive. Um, so I wanted to discuss with you guys how we feel about the Jewish American experience, let's say from November 15th to January 2nd. Um, so, uh, so I actually would love to throw this to Mimi first, just because I know both Tamara and myself grew up in very densely Jewish areas. Um, and I'm curious, how your experience uh, of which that cannot be said uh, might be different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking a lot and talking with my family over Thanksgiving about how we all reacted to um, the mass celebration of Christmas in our lives in Arkansas. Um, and I really think a lot of it comes down to like the particular mood you're in on that day. So, you know, sometimes it can feel like, isn't this nice? Like here we are all celebrating, well, sort of all celebrating, actually a really beautiful holiday and like decorations are great, lights are fun, merry whatever, this is great. And then sometimes it can feel like, are you that blind? Like, do you really think everybody you go up to, you can just say Merry Christmas to? Um, and I think that the idea, at least in Arkansas, like for many people, I was the first Jew that they had ever met, although more so my dad when he came down in like 1976 or something. So, um, you know, I learned quickly that I couldn't really hold it against people for thinking that everybody around them was Christian because for the most part, they were Christian. Um, but I, I really, I, I think that I, I did. I really resented this, just the ubiquity of Christianity at Christmas time. Um, because then you also started to think about 
at least I also started to think about like all of the ways subtly that people were trying to like figure me out and say, oh, right, happy Hanukkah or like, what do you celebrate? Or even just continuing to say Merry Christmas, even though they knew I was Jewish. So I just like, if I was feeling fed up, and by December 25th, I usually was, I just, I had it. It wasn't fun for me anymore. But Tamar, what do, what do you think? I know you're a bit more a fan of Christmas than maybe I yeah, am. Yeah, I am... I like Christmassy stuff, um, and I have since I was a kid. Like, I was totally, I think I've talked on the show before about how I was totally jealous of our neighbors having a Christmas tree. Um, but, and I, I, I'm kind of of two minds on this. I, I feel both, like, there's something actually kind of nice for me as a religious person to like be a part of a world where like people are suddenly like talking about religious practice like there is this like small part of the year where like people who aren't Jewish are suddenly like talking about their religious life in an open way around me and I kind of like that because I feel like I'm thinking about my religion like all the time and it's nice to like be in a world where other people are openly thinking about their religion and I don't mean like leaders like it's not meaningful at all to me for there to be like Christmas trees in the White House like I actually do have kind of a problem with that Um, but I don't Like, I don't actually have a problem with somebody who, like, has a religious practice saying Merry Christmas to me. Because to me, it's like, on the one hand, I probably wouldn't say Shabbat Shalom to them. But on the other hand, like, it's not offensive to me that they are, they're, like, in their religious mindset. And I know what it's like to be in your religious mindset. So that's kind of part of me is like, oh... This is the time when I see the country experience religion in a way that, like, I am experiencing it much of the time. Um, And so that's kind of, like, interesting and feels nice. On the other hand, like, yeah, I mean, there's nothing more annoying than someone who knows you are Jewish saying Merry Christmas to you. (laughs) Um, Like, there's something so nasty and, like... um, erasing about that if like in you know it's one thing if they just like say it without thinking about it but like if someone is intentionally saying Merry Christmas to you when they know that you aren't Jewish then like that's just rude um and I do I have I do have a feeling of like this country shouldn't have like a religious I don't want this isn't this is supposed to not be a religious country which is only like kind of true anyways but it's supposed to not be so I would like it if it wasn't um, yeah, so I don't know. I'm somewhere in the middle, but I would say that I, like, my default is not, like, in any way angered or upset by Christmas talk or, um, decorations or whatever. I mean, like, capitalism is capitalism. I could do with less intense capitalism around Christmas and in fact like that that is definitely the place that I do the thing that I do object to but I actually like whatever I'm kind of interested in like Christmas pageants and like Christmas like manger scenes and like I don't know I'm I'm vaguely interested in all that stuff so Zahava what about you I feel like (laughs) we have already had kind of two pretty different places so I'm interested where this is going to go. I am a little all over the place on this one. Okay so first of all I think that like growing up I kind of regarded Christmas as like weather. You know it gets cold in the winter it's get, mm. it gets Christmas in the winter whatever I walk through the world it's not really my problem um, and you know and 
in in a very particular way. It, Christmas is kind of ambient, right? Other people's lights, the music in the grocery store, um, you know, other than like sympathizing with the cashiers who have to listen to it over and over. It doesn't really bother me. Um, so in that sense, it just feels like whatever. It's it's the water I swim in during the winter, the same way like sometimes it gets humid in the summer, and that's that's fine. It, it doesn't really have anything to do with me, but. I had a very like affirmative sense growing up that it actively didn't have anything to do with me. So like I never watched the Christmas TV specials. Like it's been on TV multiple times during the season every year my whole life, but I've never actually watched the movie A Christmas Story. Um, or, you know, I, I guess I've seen It's a Wonderful Life, but you know, they also play that on Thanksgiving, so it's kosher. Um, but, <laughs> I, you know, but not because my parents made some kind of rule about me not watching The Grinch. It's just because, like, oh, that's not mine. I know that's not mine. Um, and, you know, I mean, every year it makes me a little nostalgic for Rugrats, the only television show that ever made Jewish holiday episodes. Um, but in that sense, it doesn't bother me. Um, it does mean that I, I am bothered mostly to an eye-rolling degree. Um, by the people who seem to feel that like Christmas is something they need to assert. Um, whether it's like a really pointed Merry Christmas to somebody who they know is not observing or the freaking Starbucks holiday cup wars that recur every year. Um, so like a couple of years ago, there was the cup that was like plain deep red with a plain green Starbucks logo and no like evergreen tree on it. And all of these people went completely nuts that it was insufficiently Christmassy. And I was just like, how oblivious to your own cultural dominance do you have to be to think that those colors don't say Christmas? And I think that that is kind of the symbol of like the way most Christmas observing Americans experience the things that feel ambient to me is that they feel ambient to them. This just means winter. It doesn't mean Christmas. Um, so I, I find those things to be sort of ridiculous. Um, but I do have this annoyance, um, not so much with the phrase happy holidays, cause I know it's well-intentioned and whatever, but with the fact that, um, by seasonal association with Christmas, um, many non-Jews seem to think that Hanukkah is the most important Jewish holiday, um, when in fact it is arguably the least important Jewish holiday. Um, I don't even think it's arguably. Like, it just is the least important Jewish holiday. I mean, I mean, to be Shabbat, but if you, does that one even count as a holiday? <laughs> it's like... To Ba'av? It's less important than to Ba'av, for sure. I mean, it kind of gets bucketed with Purim, um, but it has fewer, like, halachic obligations attached to it. I mean... I, yeah. Look, it bugs me a little that non-Jews think that Hanukkah is a really important Jewish holiday. It bothers me more that there are many unaffiliated Jews who, by absorbing the same cultural message, also um, have come to think that Hanukkah is the most important Jewish holiday. Like, if no Jews ever observed Hanukkah again and all of them started observing Sukkot, it would definitely be a net religious positive. Um but that is definitely not the direction we're going. So in that sense, I think the like Christmas association it has backfired a little bit on Judaism. Man, what kind of marketing <laughs> campaign would we need to do to get like everyone who lights a Hanukkah to suddenly build a sukkah? Like I want someone to write a like a like speculative fiction story about how that would happen. <laughs> Because it would be fascinating. Yeah. That would be amazing. Agreed. I do have to say, I'm a, I am I am more than a little bit nervous about how this year's Christmas season is going to play out. Um, the guy who's in the White House, like, every year has made a big stink about pushing back against happy holidays and... PC norms and like reclaiming Christmas and I just I, I don't know I'm like I really don't want to go through this whole debate. You know it's funny because like I have zero affectionate feelings towards the person in the White House right now but I actually feel like 
the war against Christmas is like the one thing where I'm like, I'm fine with it. Like if you are Christian enough that you really care about Christmas and putting the Jesus back into Christmas, like go ahead and do your thing. That's <laughs> like, smart. I've, <laughs> I think it's the Christ I'm, back in Christmas, not the Jesus. I know, but I try to avoid saying Christ, but thank you. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, but, like, I, like, that, those people, even though I may, like, disagree with them fundamentally on, like, actual issues, like, being able to have your religion be, your religious holiday be a religious holiday, I'm on board with that. Like, that's actually what I think, too, is, like, don't make me pretend like Hanukkah is important right now. Hanukkah is, like, not really important. Like, it's, that's why I I feel like I'm fine with people saying Merry Christmas, because it's like, yeah, the focus of this season is actually Christmas. It's not actually, in any way, Hanukkah, which is fine, because who needs to focus on Hanukkah? It's dumb. Like, I just... <laughs> I, that's the one part where I'm like, I don't, I don't want a war on Christmas. Like, in fact, like, if you want to really do Christmas from a religious place, like, do it. The part of Christmas that I object to is actually the, like, you know, selling crap and the, like, stampeding into Walmart at 4 a.m. on the day after Thanksgiving when you, like, could be, like, cozy in bed. Like, that's the part where I'm like, not with you. You know, this makes me think a little bit about um, previous discussions we've had about religion in the public square. Um, It actually made me reflect a little bit. So we had a discussion a few years back on um, various European burqa bans. um, And I had uh, very strong things to say about those being absolute crap. Um, But just reflecting on this for a second, I think that, currently speaking, the United States has a pretty robust freedom of worship. Um, And I feel like I am amply compensated for the ambient Christmas um, with, like, genuine, you know, ability to do my Jewish thing um, and be respected for it, uh, whether it's respected um, by for, for lack of government intervention or just respected by the society around me. I think that as a general rule, Americans are pretty deferential to other people's religious practices and beliefs and find them sort of worthy and interesting. Poo, 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 and vote in your next election that that should always be the case. I mean, so uh, <laughs> um, But think about like France, <laughs> um, where there have been recent, you know, where there's, a lot of discussion about secularism in the public square and we need to ban visible religious symbols and, you know, we can't possibly have women that wear hijab, uh, you know, working uh, in in public capacity. And I would bet anything that there are many Christmas decorations in the public space in France where Catholicism is basically a birthright and secularism means secularism for everybody but us. and so there's something that feels more honest about it here um, in a way that grates on me less because I really do think that like if I, you know, if I say to my coworkers, oh, I need to take off the following like seven days in September, they're like, okay, cool, have a happy holiday. Um, and nobody thinks twice and everybody respects that. Um, and so to me, to me, that's broadly speaking, okay. I guess I interface with um, religion in the quasi-public square. Um, as I mentioned on a few episodes back, I work in senior housing. And I do know from the Jewish or non-Christian residents in a lot of senior housing buildings that they start to feel invisible around this time of year when suddenly everything is Christmas and there are Christmas celebrations and gift exchanges and cookie everything sponsored by the building staff. And there's like the token Hanukkah party or a menorah next to the Christmas tree. Um, 
but I, I, I personally, like, I think the thing that makes me feel okay about so much Christmas in my face is that I know I can come home and have either have it be a regular day or like the Hanukkah with my family or whatever it is. And I don't know, I just like, whether it's peers of mine who went to boarding schools that were mostly Christian or now older adults living in public housing that has all of these Christmas celebrations, like that feels so lonely to me. Do either of you have anything about the Christmas season that you do have like a particularly good feeling about that is somewhat Jewish? So I was thinking about some people like the eating Chinese food on Christmas is like really important to them. Some people, like, even though Hanukkah may not be a theologically important holiday, like, have some Hanukkah tradition that's really important to them. Like, is there anything about the season that is, like, Jewishly meaningful to you or not particularly? I think for me, um, my family was good at embracing the festival of lights part of Hanukkah. And I find that that is a really nice way to also appreciate Christmas. Um, And to think about like, it is a really dark season. And it's so nice that there are all of these twinkling colorful lights out. Um, So that's one way for me to appreciate that we're all celebrating a holiday in a cold month. And on that point, I will say my mom did so, like, always went above and beyond with, like, decorating at least one table in the house with, like, sparkly things, several Hanukkiot, and, like, a a mirror underneath where the candles would go so that the candles would appear even brighter. And that, to me, is, like that's when it feels like Hanukkah is being celebrated, right? When there's just like tons of flickering lights. That does sound very nice. What about you, Sava? So notwithstanding my saying that Hanukkah is an unimportant holiday, which I think is empirically true within Judaism, that doesn't mean I don't like Hanukkah. Um, It's still a holiday. Um, I mean, one of the things that I really like is the opportunity to get together with my family. And I mean, I spend holidays with my family often, but there's something about Hanukkah being, so we are not drivers on Shabbat or holiday. And um, Hanukkah is one of those holidays that's low grade enough that you can drive. And so it's an opportunity to get together in like a more casual way than like spending 72 hours together. Um, And so we can come together sort of on a night that's convenient for everybody and light candles together and sing Ma'oz Tzur together. I come from a family that sings all of the verses of Ma'oz Tzur, um, which is really nice. My parents have slightly Why different... is that not surprising to me in the slightest? <laughs> <laughs> the whole Haggadah in the original Hebrew and every single verse of Ma'oz Tzur and no cheating. Um, <laughs> so, but... Um, my parents actually have two slightly different versions of Ma'oz Tzor from their different upbringings, and they have a system of alternating nights, um, which has left us, oh, <laughs> which my has left Lord. us <laughs> confused as to which one is which, and can we get either version correct in its entirety? Anyway, but I love that opportunity. <laughs> that is the Zahavaist <laughs> thing that ever Zahavad. <laughs> um... <laughs> So, and my dad's latkes are great. Um, I will say, in terms of like a Jewish thing that I glean from the Christmas, qua Christmas season, nothing reinforces for me, like Christmas, that I am a member of a minority religion. And for reasons that I'm having trouble kind of putting into words, being a member of a minority religion is kind of important to my Jewish self-conception. Um... Maybe because the development of the development of my Judaism, right, of post-temple Judaism, really is the development of minority religion, and that's like from Talmud on down, you really see that. Um, you know, maybe it's because kind of living with a foot in two worlds is part of my self-conception. Um, I'll say like Hanukkah in Israel and 
the quote-unquote Christmas season in Israel, which consists of, I don't know, Armenians on January 7th putting up Christmas trees in Jerusalem, um, is like a very different experience. Um, and I, I guess I kind of value the reinforcement of my strong minority identity as well. What about you? I... Yeah, I don't care about Chinese food ever. I, I'm like happy to celebrate Hanukkah, but it's not really meaningful to me. The truth is that like because um, part of my partner's family is not Jewish, like we do Christmassy stuff with them, and I really like that time. Um, and it's not like, I don't know, like, I mean, just kind of consistent with everything I've been saying, like, it's not explicitly Jewish, but like, I never feel more Jewish than when I'm like, at someone's Christmas <laughs> party or whatever. Um, but again, like, I, I kind of like that. Um, and it is meaningful to me. And um, it makes it makes me think about my own faith um, and like what I believe and why I do the rituals I do and whatever. Um, so I like all that stuff. And <laughs> my, our uh, our Christmas observance has gone from being a bunch of Jews on a farm visiting another farm in rural Wisconsin for Christmas to Jews. <laughs> Um, and a uh, Buddhist and a Muslim <laughs> visiting a farm uh, for another farm for Christmas. So we've really like taken it to the next level with this multicultural <laughs> situation that we have going. And I, but we like, even though it's you know we we exchange gifts like not obviously an observance of Christmas, but just like it's nice that we're all together. It's fun to be around people that you care about and love and give each other gifts. So I don't know. Nothing really Jewish about it, except that it makes me feel super Jewy when we do it. <laughs> okay. Time for endorsements. Zahava, what do you got? So I'm actually going to use my endorsement slot as sort of a follow-up to our last month episode on ritual. Um, on two points. One is that uh, one of our listeners took my question about parental obligations towards daughters um, that could be the basis for some kind of ritual naming ceremony and shared that question with the extremely large Facebook group, God Save Us From Your Opinion, a place for serious discussions of Judaism. Um, and there was a pretty extensive discussion, which is always great to see. Um, and the consensus that emerged um, is that there's, there's actually a pretty strong rabbinic consensus that parents have an obligation to teach daughters to observe the mitzvot in which they are obligated, um, which is a real thing. It's not as specific and concrete as a Brit Milab, but it is a real thing, and it's something that's food for thought. Um, you know, when, when and if I'm in a position to try and construct that ceremony. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention, you know, we talked a little bit about rituals we like, and something that didn't come to mind at the time, and I'm not sure quite qualifies as a ritual, but it's certainly a ritualized thing, is how much I appreciate, and I guess this is my endorsement, how much I appreciate the way Judaism gives you things to say in difficult moments. Um, and that could be anything from something as serious as having a ritualized way to, you know, say goodbye at the end of a shiva call when someone's lost a parent and they're in mourning and you're like, what on earth can I say to leave them with? And then Judaism gives you something to say um, to something a lot lighter, like a really good friend you don't see that often just spent Shabbat with you and you don't really know how to say goodbye in a way that doesn't feel like okay, well, bye, right? You need to say something, but you don't have like a speech. And the ability to say like Shavuot Tov, like have a good week at the end of Shabbat, instead of just like trying to come up with a goodbye, it creates a moment that's easier to work with. Um, so I think there are a, a lot of those little bits in, uh, in Judaism. And I was, have been reflecting recently on how much I appreciate having those sort of ritualized um, moments 
to fall back on uh, when it might be hard to come up with something to say. I like that. That, yeah, me too. Um, Mimi, what about you? What do you have to endorse? Okay, so I know this is not my persona on the podcast, but I'm going to endorse um, learning Talmud with a partner. Um, I recently um, sort of re-engaged in this practice with a friend in the area, um, and he was telling me that basically learning Gemara helped him get through his divorce. Both he and I are facing like family medical issues, and it was really nice to think about, oh, like maybe doing this together can also sort of mark this time for us and be a weekly moment where we don't have to talk about like what's going on and how is everybody, but I don't know that using this activity to get through um, a difficult time. It's just, I don't quite know like what to do with that idea, but I'm really drawn to it um, as like a, a marker for a period. Cool. Shades oh, of uh, if all the seas yeah. were ink there. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say. I, <laughs> that's the exact premise of a book we I should read. also say that, um, I, I, that learning Talmud doesn't have to be like all that scary and hard. Like we are going through it mostly like doing Hebrew and Aramaic with the translation right by our side. And it is still... Um, really fun and really hard and we have lots of good questions so don't be scared awesome cool um i would like to endorse a book um it's called codename verity and it is by a writer named elizabeth wine um w-e-i-n um, it's a young adult novel, but I read it as an adult and I thought it was great. Um, it's just like a fun adventure story about um, two girls who are friends and one of them is a pilot during World War II. Um, it's it's just a, a really fun adventure story. It is It does have an intense ending and so it is probably not um for like super young readers um but i think it's like it's like maybe like a sixth grade um book but i really i really liked it and i thought it really was a different take on uh young adult novels about the holocaust (laughs) i am part of actually a committee choosing the best Jewish young adult novel of the year and we've gotten something like 15 books and I want to say at least half maybe more than half are holocaust stories uh which is too much if you are a writer listening to this and you're working on a young adult novel and it's about anything that happens in world war ii I want to encourage you to stop and choose some other subject to write about um, because this is an oversaturated market. Um, and in fact, like the only reason I love Codename Verity, I think, and I wasn't just kind of like immediately irritated by it is because um, it takes place mostly in England. And so it's really not dealing with like people who have the Nazis showing up in their community. It's more about a slightly more distant threat. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just think don't write any more of these stories. But if you're interested in reading something about that period that isn't going to be super cliched or overdone, I really um, encourage you to pick up Codename Verity. I love that you have time to be part of this committee. I don't know, because I know you don't have oh time God. and you seem to do all the things. And I do not know how it's possible. The degree to which I don't have time for this committee cannot be overstated. <laughs> <laughs> We've gotten like 
14 books or something, 13 or 14 books. I, I'm not exactly sure of the number. I've read one and a half of them. <laughs> and um, I mean, <laughs> the problem is I have now a week and a half in which to read at least 10 Holocaust young adult oh novels. God. So <laughs> so that this week's going to be awesome. This is what <laughs> I'm trying to say. Yes, please send all of the wine and chocolate to me. Um, all right. Well, <laughs> on that bizarre note, uh, Zahaba, would you like to, or Mimi, actually, would you like to take us out? Well, thank you for listening. If you have a comment on this show, or if you want to let us know what you think, and if you want to suggest a topic for us to discuss, please leave a comment at our website, jpmedia.co. We really love hearing from you. We also have a little favor to ask if you could find us on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. This is really helpful for new listeners to hear from you what you think about the show. Also, search Jewish Public Media on Facebook and like us there. That way you'll always know when a new episode drops and you can use the Facebook page to suggest topic ideas. You're listening to this podcast for free, but it was not free to produce. If you'd like to support Jewish Public Media, please head out to our website, jpmedia.co, and hit the donate button. Thanks, and see you next month.